This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. Hi everybody and welcome to this special Teachers Talk Radio Extra where we are talking about all things autism and what teachers should know about autism in the classroom. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by Anne-Marie Harrison. Uh, Anne-Marie is joining me especially because there is a, a fantastic virtual event coming up hosted by Witherslack Group on the 30th of March, um, which is all about autism and uh, celebrating uh, children's superpowers. And the, the webinar is entitled Autism, Creating Aspirational Futures, um, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. So if you are a teacher and you are working with children who are autistic, um, then it may be that those parents of those children would like to get involved in the project or to see this webinar, which is on Wednesday the 30th. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, you can register for the webinar for free at Witherslack Group. Uh, you just visit their website, witherslackgroup.co.uk, and just click on uh, webinars and events or support and events, and then you can see the event listed there. Uh, as I say, it's called Autism creating aspirational futures. You've got a whole host of expert speakers, uh, including Tracy Bowyer, who's virtual school coordinator for the ADHD Foundation. Uh, you've got Susan Gill, head teacher of Bridgeway School. You've got Dr. Tony Lloyd, the CEO of the ADHD Foundation. Uh, you've also got our very own here, Anne-Marie Harrison, who uh, is part of Ideas of Fresh Education. So Anne-Marie, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself um, in at uh, this point and tell us a little bit more about you and and what you do hi yep yeah, i'm delighted to be part of this and and certainly as always um thrilled to be working with the with slack group and their um, philosophy and um emphasis towards supporting parents and families and teachers very much um hooks into my own sort of personal philosophy as well. So I'm the education director for Ideas Afresh um, Limited. And uh, I worked for the National Autistic Society and still do as a kind of subcontracted trainer. So um, for, for sort of 15 years prior to my setting up my own independent training business. So I very much too focus on working and supporting families and teachers and ideally the two together. Um, in you know working well and understanding the autistic children that they um, have the joy and the privilege to have as part of their classroom or part of their family lives. So uh, thank you for inviting me along today. 
No problem. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the talk that you're actually doing on the 30th? So the, the title of your talk is Autism, the yeah. Building Blocks to Happiness and Wellbeing. Absolutely. And so I wonder whether you could give us a little sneak preview of the sort of things you might be talking about in that. Yeah, I think, Kim, you know, basically it's not about sort of necessarily reinventing the wheel or coming up with, you know, great strategic and new ideas. It's very much about touching base with how can we support our children, both in our home and in our classroom, in feeling um, that, you know, life is fun, life is satisfying, life is successful, and that they want to participate, they want to engage. And so, you know, I'm going to be talking about really touching base with some of the basics, actually, some of those kind of balances against physical and um, social uh, need, as well as that kind of emotional need as well, and how we can connect and engage um, with our autistic children to support them, not, not us thinking that they're successful, but them actually feeling it. And that's one of my big emphases that actually, it's about the child themselves feeling that enjoyment, feeling that success. And of course, that looks different for all children, let alone autistic children. And, you know, sometimes we can read an innate smile as a suggestion that a child is actually enjoying something. Whereas one particular child told me that if he wears this expression on his face, then it stops his teacher from asking him questions because uh, his teacher thinks that he's doing okay. And, you know, so I think like, we'll be touching on some of those kind of, um, you know, misconnections sometimes and, and misreading that we do with our children. And, and, you know, just focusing on some of the strategies that are perhaps give a little bit more clarity in terms of what our children themselves are actually reading the world like and whether they are feeling that um, engagement and success themselves yeah perfect so what what i thought we'd do in this kind of special episode is we're going to talk about what what teachers should know about teaching students with with autism and how uh, how they should go about that um yeah. and what i've done is i've picked out an article by a by a reputable uh, kind of uh, industry I've, would we describe them as an industry leader? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, in in, in autism, I'm not I'm not going to name them, but it's an article from them, um, and it's basically thirty things that teachers should should do or should know about uh, uh, teaching students with autism. So uh, the title of the article is Thirty Things All Teachers Should Know About Autism in the Classroom. Uh, we are going to run through each of these thirty, or certainly most of them, anyway and uh hopefully gonna ask you some questions about them Anne marie and then we yeah, can yeah. maybe dig into them and of course it may be that um you disagree with some of them <laughs> at particular points we'll we'll see we'll see how we go um yeah so feel free to kind of uh chip in your thoughts so the first one on this list and by the way you're talking to a novice here in me um who you know i wouldn't by no means say that i'm a an expert teacher of Sen or somebody who has a, a, an excellent knowledge uh, around this area. So it'd be quite good for me as well to, to learn something new. The first point says, and I've seen this actually on like quotes on social yeah. media, I've seen it. If you've met one child with autism, 
you've met one child with autism. What what do they mean by that? I think I, I quite like that as a starting point, actually, because I think what mm. it does do is remind us that actually, you know, autism is a spectrum. And I, I think, you know, that's referred to a little bit later on in this article as well. And the fact that, um, you know, just because you're pre-verbal at two years of old age doesn't mean to say that by 20, you might still be pre-verbal, but you may be. And I, and I think, you know, what happens here in this um, suggestion that we meet one child with autism, we meet one child with autism, is that hopefully it's flagging up that unique and individual developmental profile that we'll often see. I mean, we, we see individual developmental profiles in neurotypical children, but if you had a class full of four-year-olds with autism and a class full of four-year-olds four that are neurotypical, then the developmental profile is likely to be much more spiky and much less predictable than it would be for a class full of neurotypical um, developing children. So I think, you know, it's a good start because it mm. reminds us of that spiky profile. Um, you know, rather than sort of um, pointing the fact that, you know, if a child's got is four and is autistic, these things might help because indeed they might not. <laughs> when you say when you say pre-verbal, what do you mean by that? Well, I think lots of people refer to autistic children as non-verbal because their development of language can be very different to that typical pattern that we would expect to see in our more neurotypical children. But there's lots of um, cases where uh, we hear that, you know, children suddenly started talking at, at six mm. years of age, you know, mm. Temple Grandin um, being one very kind of, you know, well-known within the autistic um, arena, um, you know, who didn't start speaking until she was six. And actually even more up to date, I noticed on Twitter just the other day, a guy called John Bier had um, quoted his cousin, Liam Collins, who had written a poem called The Survivors. And apparently this guy hasn't spoken, he's 22 now, and he hasn't used any verbal language until writing this poem. And in this poem, and I've quoted a little two sentences from it, because I thought, what a great um, thing to bring to our table today. And it says, we've got to give credit uh, to the truly intrepid, for they are the ones who are brave. And I, I love that. I think that is what we are. You know, we sometimes intrepidly creep towards the world of autism, thinking that we're, you know, we're a bit overwhelmed and maybe we don't understand enough. But actually, you know, a skilled teacher who knows their child well can know an autistic child equally as well and do just as good a job. And I think that's an important message for us to put out there. Superb. Um the, the next one, it says it's possible for a child with autism to move up the spectrum. Uh, yeah. Now, you're going to have to explain that one to me in terms of when it says up the spectrum. Yeah. Because you're going to have to explain what the spectrum is for a start. Well, I'm also going to kind of try and um, omit the word up there. I was going to I was going <laughs> to say that from an outside point of view. who's yeah. not an expert. I was going to say that the word up there suggests that. <laughs> Um, that there must be a down. You know? Yeah, well, exactly. And I, I think as well, you know, in our profession, you know, we're all, you know, teachers and you know, my background mm -hmm. is, is certainly um, in education. And 
And I think, um, you know, we kind of think of uh, the words like ups and downs as, as progressing or not. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, it's really important that when we're working with our autistic children and we are mindful of that spectrum, that we are mindful of what it is. And so we need to think of it very much as the fullness of a rainbow. And I, you know, when I'm doing my um, training, you know, I have a, a wonderful picture of the whole circular image of that rainbow rather than that crescent of a rainbow. And I, I think, you know, thinking and being mindful of the spectrum as circular moves away from this idea of moving up or down, but helps us to remember that we're moving within. And if we're moving within that circle, what it suggests is that whatever's happening environmentally, but also intrinsically, may well have some impact on where we're moving within that spectrum, because it absolutely is not an up-down progressive or not, and absolutely not a stable measure. Is it possible for a teacher, how much impact can a teacher have on moving a child along or within that spectrum i think um, absolutely massively it, it's immeasurable the impact that um a, a skilled and you know bought in a teacher can have in terms of supporting our autistic learners and i think that you know children don't autistic children need the same as any other child they need to feel that their teacher likes them they need to feel that their teacher understands them. And if the teacher does both of those things, then there's no reason why that child can't progress in just the same way as any other child in the class. And I think what we need to do as a profession is to acknowledge that we can't possibly know everything that there is to know if we've not been um, you know, allowed to pursue the right training and the right support to get that knowledge so that you can understand that whole spectrum and the movement within it and what triggers might occur to make a child less communicative or to make them, you know, more sensitive to something that's going on in the environment. So, you know, it's absolutely doable, but it, we need the right um, support in accessing the right training, definitely. I, personally, I feel it, it should be compulsory part of teach training from the very early stages. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of, because the next one that we're going to discuss is, um, quote, like all kids, children with autism have strengths and weaknesses. I was wondering at the most, I, I'm going to be very careful here in the, in the language that I use, but the most kind of, um, uh, would we use the word severe i don't know what we would say but but certainly somebody a child who is autistic and is tell me if there's a better word but severely autistic yeah um, or very autistic yeah what what are the features of a child who is very autistic what 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 does a teacher you know imagine it's a child who who hasn't been uh diagnosed or hasn't been told that they are autistic what what does a teacher look out for i think classically we've used the words severe and marked and and very autistic and i, I think what we'll have to do is go back to what the autism 
diagnostic profile is, which is about looking at our children's social communication, social interactions, social behavior. So, you know, autism remains a primarily socially diagnosed condition. And um, coupled into that mm. are obviously the kind of sensory processing profile that, you know, has a huge impact. And then obviously the behaviours that, you know, we as teachers often are, are, are commenting that that's the pointer, that's what we're experiencing, that may be what we're seeing in class, our children that perhaps are struggling to interpret the intention of other children mm. or to cope with the patterns and changes within the daily mm. routine or within school life. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of pointers, what are we looking for? I think, you know, what we what we will notice is that our children are not necessarily quite so skilled at fitting in with social expectations, that they're not quite so skilled at coping with the different dimensions and elements of a school environment without perhaps some additional support and without perhaps some um, appropriate pointers or appropriate opportunities for their kind of need to maybe just reconnect and, and take some um, sort of calm down time. And so therefore, you know, wrapped up in that is the kind of the ability to communicate your needs. So to be able to ask your teacher to, you know, let me have a bit of calm down time without that being done by a behaviour and um, communicating by behaviour. So you've kind of got the two sort of um, dilemmas in a way. So you've got the child who's perhaps not communicating in the way that you would hope, and also the child that's not necessarily fitting in in the way that you would hope. And of course, that child is still bringing to the table lots of skills and lots of abilities, which mm. I know, you know, we'll mention later. But, you know, it. It is that real complex presentation without a shadow of a doubt. But I think, you know, as a teacher, you very quickly pick up on the fact that, you know, these um, autistic children are not quite there with their peers in terms of social behaviours. Yeah. I mean, the next one says respect the patterns. So yeah, what does this mean? It says here, children on the autism spectrum tend to thrive on repetition and routine. Yeah, I like, I kind of, I like that respecting patterns because I know many years ago I did my um, division teach training um, and uh, one of the kind of gurus in autism is a guy, Gary Mezibov, who if any of you are using schedules in school, you know, he is actually the guru that um, realised that, that kind of cradle to grave service of using the ability of our autistic children's visual memory mm. um, is a really useful way of working with um, our autistic children. And so, therefore, you know, using as much visual um, information, be yeah. it lists, be it, you know, schedules, be it pictures, be it photographs, be it whatever is appropriate for that individual child, is a really powerful way to work. And I remember when I did my training, and this has stuck with me forever, he used this phrase, familiarity is your friend when you're autistic. And I like that, but I also think familiarity is all of our friends. The first thing we do 
when we are under stress or we are feeling under pressure is we seek out something that is familiar to us. And I, you know, I know Russia is very current, um, obviously, at the moment, but I had the privilege of um, going over to Russia some years ago and working with the National Autistic Society in delivering some of the um, early training for some psychologists. And when we were there, my, me and my then boss felt very kind of unfamiliar with all of our surroundings and all of our experiences. And we actually went into the very McDonald's that um, you know uh, has has uh, been on the news recently, and we were kind of smiling about it because it's not the eatery of our usual choice, but we sought out the familiar. And I think you know, as human beings, we seek out the familiar, and so that's what respecting the patterns are. It's helping us to use familiarity mm. as our friend, as our reassurance yeah yeah i get that completely um not the mcdonald's bit but i get the whole analogy um the the um the next one says be aware of sensory issues what they are and why they can be a problem introducing autism aspirational futures a virtual sen conference for parents and carers do you work with parents or carers of students with autism if so, this free virtual conference from With a Slack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out! Register for free at withaslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs. Yeah, and I think, um, I, again, I'll probably change the wording a little bit here because I think be aware of our sensory processing system. It, because our sensory processing system is a part of every individual and it often governs the way in which we cope with our world, the way in which we interact with our world. You know, we all will have habits that help us to concentrate, that help us to connect, that help us to feel calm, that cope when we need to de-energize or when we need to re-energize. And we're, what we're all doing there is just engaging our sensory systems. And I think sometimes autistic sensory systems get bad press because they are um, often very um, profound. And I think um, sometimes they get bad press in that they get marketed as uh, I've heard, um, you know, in, in this article too, I've heard, you know, referred to as perhaps a little bit unreliable. But actually, I don't think that's necessarily the case because your sensory system is reliable to the person who is experiencing that particular sensory system. It's very reliable. And if your sensory system is telling you um, that you know, the ground uh, beneath you is not as solid because the carpet pattern appears to be moving, then whilst that's not reliable information in our neurotypical interpretation, we know the carpet isn't physically moving. For that individual, that carpet is moving just as much as an escalator 
would be moving to a neurotypical person. So I think what is important here is that we respect and understand the sensory systems and we work within them. Spot on. Yeah, I, I mean, all that makes sense to me from a, from a kind of novice point of view in terms of what you're saying. The, the next one says, get used to the rocking pacing of flapping. Um, yeah. Now, yeah. interesting. Um, <laughs> What what's what what is what are these things? Well, I, I think what are they referring to here? I think they're referring to some notice behaviors, basically. You know, yeah. those, those those behaviors that we as teachers perhaps, you know, will just observe and notice. And perhaps, you know, again, if we couple what we know about our social world, you know, how do you know? That when you go to the rugby or the football it's okay to jump up and down to cheer and to clap and yet if you were attending you know a meeting at work or a staff meeting mm. you and you really felt very strongly or you know were very excited about a piece of information your social response your social behavior may be a little bit more governed or a little bit more clipped because of the situation so, of course, our kids aren't reading those social situations, so they're not governing and clipping their responses or the behaviours accordingly. Mm. So, of mm. course, we will therefore see these behaviours more often, more openly, more frequently. And, you know, sometimes I think it's almost like the autistic physical honesty, which, you know, I love that about our autistic community, that honesty, that openness. And in some ways, you know, it's like seeing that physically happening. And I think what we also need to do is not overlook those behaviours in terms of being signs and signals for us around anxiety, around excitement, around relaxation. And we can read those behaviours and we can use that information to support us in engaging with learning, you know. Yeah, I mean, in, in within the classroom as a teacher, like what, what kind of... Um, because we always hear this this kind of phrase of like reasonable adjustments, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, for teachers that they they should be making. I mean, what kind of reasonable adjustments should a teacher in say early years or or early primary be making for students who are autistic? I think kind of. For us to cover that here, it would need a, a whole day. But I can, what I can do is just give a couple of little examples of where adjustments have been made and it's been very successful. So um, certainly one springs immediately to mind because it's quite recent. And I, that was a little girl who um, was just in, um, in year one. And she had had a habit right through really foundation, um, well, through... Um, you know, nursery as well, Yeah. Uh, of kind of taking her shoes and socks off as soon as she gets to nursery and hurling them across the room. And of course, you know, kind of, it hadn't really been addressed from the word go. And I would say that, you know, it's important that we don't just ignore these um, behaviours or just accept them if they're not actually okay, if they are harmful mm -hmm. to the child themselves or to others. Now, of course, arguably, um, you know, having your bare feet in your nursery or in your classroom, you know, that's a whole new debate. Personally, I, I think it's worth the risk. Mm. Um, 
if that's what helps the child to feel calm yeah. and comfortable. But of course, hurling your shoes across the room potentially and has on occasions and was upsetting and hitting other people. Yeah. And then this little girl was kind of going up to school and she still had this need to take her shoes and socks off. And a very simple adjustment was just to put a basket under her chair so that when she took her shoes and socks off, the basket, they go in the basket under the chair. <laughs> And that was enough. So like the most simple things sometimes yeah. can make the most significant difference. But of course, if we don't know why that's happening, because socially she didn't know where to put her shoes and socks and she hadn't had that experience of learning that. And just because all the other children put theirs somewhere else is insignificant for our autistic children. It, it doesn't matter. They don't learn by social osmosis. Yeah. So just because everyone else is sitting on the carpet doesn't mean to say it's expected that you do. Mm. So, you know, having some real clarity and, you know, maybe um, if we want children to line up or to wait for something, you know, helping them kind of take a lucky dip colour or number and standing in the order of, of that rather than simply standing in front or behind of another child which feels very difficult socially so structuring things I think it, as much as we can can be a really reasonable adjustment you know using carpet squares to sit on rather than just come and sit mm. uh, you know and, and putting introducing things things and yeah you know yeah visual supports really got you and um, i'm going to put the next kind of two statements into one so it's provide instructions in as few words as possible yeah and be prepared to give instructions in multiple ways yeah and i i think kind of you're right to put those two together because basically mm. what we're saying is tailoring communication to our individuals um strengths really so and I think that's important that you know we're using communication that is suitable for the individual child because it's not fair to say that all children need the same um sort of level of um mm. maybe one phrase requests or um time to process or visual communication so what we want to do is try and structure our communication so that it's appropriate to that individual child's needs and make sure that the whole school are consistent with that. So we haven't got um, you know, a visual timetable in the classroom working really well and the mm. teacher kind of using um, you know, visuals to support um, instructions and requests. And then we open the door at lunchtime and the poor child is left at sea in one of the most open, socially demanding environments mm. without those levels of support. So, you know, thinking about how we can make sure that that is communication is um, at the right level and consistent within the school, I think is really important. Got you. Um, the, the next one talks about um, like social situations. Um, yeah. So it says that social situations are difficult for children on the autism spectrum um and then it moves on to talk about don't be afraid to spend time teaching very specific social rules and skills yeah it's really gray isn't it when we kind of start talking talking categorically mm. about difficulties because yeah. of course um 
you know, I, I've seen and experienced lots of socially successful autistic um, environments. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and I think sometimes it's about more trying to move away from thinking of it as a difficulty, but thinking of it in terms of what can we make, what can we do to make this work well? And, you know, some children, as long as they've got a focus of interest, can be really sociable. And whilst they may need support in turn taking, and those kinds of things need teaching and supporting from an early stage, we can, of course, have a lot of success. And, you know, some children, um, you know, I, I, I've played Monopoly um, with kids who are, you know, tons better than me. And uh, I recently played um, an Uno um, game that also was a strategic, it was um, Uno um, tiles. And, uh, you know, the, the um, autistic little boy playing that was definitely poles ahead of me. And yeah. so, you know, sometimes if we can make the situation comfortable, then we can have a really lovely social interaction. And I think, you know, what we need to be doing is kind of just thinking, how can we support successful social experiences rather than just thinking of them as difficult social um, experiences? And I think, you know, modelling and giving lots of opportunities for successful social experiences will then help our autistic children to feel safe and more inclined to branch out and to mm. and to engage themselves in social um, you know occasions and you know join things that have got um, a particular focus on their interests so you know classically we talk about sort of chess club and and things like that which i know it sounds a bit cliche but actually it's true if we can find something that actually yeah has a commonality of interest, then that's a really good vehicle into successful social interactions. Yeah. I, I, interestingly, the, the next one moves on to talk about don't take the hurtful words personally. Now, yeah. the, how common is it that a, a child who is on the autism spectrum would 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 use hurtful words or would would be unintentionally hurtful verbally well, let's put it this way how common is it that kids say things they don't mean all the time exactly so why do we have this expectation that our autistic children <laughs> would be doing more or less of that what our autistic children do is not socially govern when they do that or where yeah. they do that so you know they might um, shout at the teacher where yeah. a typically developing child might keep a lid on it yeah it can be the other way around they might shout at their parent an autistic child might not shout at the teacher they might keep a lid on it so mm. we can't make categoric statements but I think what we can do is um absolutely uh, agree that actually you know all kids say things that they don't mean and all parents and all teachers could potentially take those occasions yeah. very personally yeah. and i think because of the social profile of our autistic children sometimes their words seem more intense they may seem more intent on the way in which they're delivering them but we have to remember 
that part of their profile, part of their diagnostic profile is their social difficulties. So that's also going to come out in terms of their intensity and their, you know, verbal intent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not going to necessarily have the understanding of the social impact of the words that they're saying yeah. or when or where they're saying it in the same way that maybe a, a, a typical peer might have. So I think, you know, that's the important thing for us to remember. And the fact that, you know, we can do um, a lot of uh, support. And if we are getting children who are, you know, using hurtful words and, and, and mm. appearing very angry, then it's important that we acknowledge those feelings and try and understand, you know, where that is coming from and, and sort of where it's rooted, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't surprise your autistic students with changes. Um, and that's a difficult one for teachers, isn't it? Because it is. there is a lot of change that yeah. often needs to happen or, or teachers are told that needs to happen do you know what i mean yeah definitely and we can't always prepare for change you know change does happen and i think in terms of the surprise bit you know we're all different aren't we my husband mm. actually hates surprises and i you know made a fatal mistake when you know we were in our 30s of organizing a surprise birthday party thankfully for his decade marked birthday since you know, I learned a lesson that actually this was not a good way forward. Now, I love surprises, but I think because of his hate of them, he's never actually given me a surprise yet. So, you know, you, you never know. But I think the point I'm making here is that we all have a spectrum of tolerance in terms of surprise and change. Mm -hmm. And of course, classically, our autistic children can respond, potentially respond very negatively to unprepared changes. But we've got this kind of mythical belief that they can't cope with change, which isn't actually fair, because very often if our children are rehearsed in coping with change, then they can manage change just as well as a neurotypical child. But what they need is lots of opportunity to experience change. So I think as teachers, it's really great if we can start and teach about change in the classroom. So doing things like saying, oh, there's going to be a change. You know, we're going to have uh, two minutes longer doing an activity that, you know, she can clearly see the children are really enjoying. So that we teach the concept of change in a very positive way. And so that all our children are actually when they hear there's going to be a change, they don't get mm. struck, struck by panic. They get yeah. struck by a, oh, oh, well, this might be okay. And I think, you know, practicing the emotional experience of a change or a surprise in a safe and calm way and in a pleasant way can then in turn help our children cope when it changes not planned like a fire drill that's a real fire, not a fire drill, sorry, you know, a, a fire that yeah. is, a, is a kind of, you know, real, we have to get out now sort of situation so that it's not a, a you know, an unplanned change as it were. It doesn't yeah. feel quite so catastrophic for our children that they're coping more calmly with it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, another one here says, understand that children with autism need extra time to process language. Um, yeah. 
So I'm guessing this is this is kind of, I guess, about patience for the teachers. It is, it is isn't it? And then um, I, I think, you know, it's kind of a reminder as well to all of us that we live in a, a crazy, fast moving world. And um, I had some surgery recently and uh, um, I realised that everyone in the world expects everything to happen so quickly. Yeah. And um, even, you know, the post lady comes to the door and I was on crutches and I don't live in a particularly big house, but I couldn't get to the door on time. And it really struck me, actually, that everything, not just our social communication, but our physical expectations, you know, ring a doorbell, we want a response, yeah. order our meal, we want it delivered. Yeah. And that and I think part of that has really driven home the fact that actually, yes, our children do need extra time to process. And the communication that we deliver needs to be done with, you know, the right support, but also allowing time and not cutting in with an additional request or cutting in with a reminder. And actually, I worked with one mum and she said that this was the best bit of information that she had on one of the courses that she attended, because she said she learned to count to 25 when she asked her little girl to do something. And actually, if you and I sat here now and counted to 25, it actually feels quite a long time, mm. although in yeah. theory it's not. But she said that that alone allowed her little girl to then carry out one step instruction. So I think we just need to learn to step back and slow down. Yeah. We'll combine these two, but you cannot communicate to a child with autism the way you might another child um, and use positive reinforcement over punishment. Um, yeah. Now, again, from a teacher perspective, um, and from a whole school perspective, there's going to be implications there, aren't there, to those yeah. two? And whether, I mean, do you agree with those? Do you, would you adapt them? I mean, it... I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think it's the same for everything. I think, you know, it's about adapting. And yes, I think, you know, you have to adapt your communication and you have to adapt your reward and motivation systems to yeah. be appropriate for not just, you know, autistic children but for the individual autistic child and I think you know often teachers say we haven't got time to personalize but actually I, I kind of think well we need to step back from that and think well how can we make it so that it's appropriate for not just the autistic child but all the kids in the class so for example when um you know my sort of experience of working in school I have much more success building a pasta jar um, as a reward scheme in our classroom than having a sticker chart where, you know, names are up and there's that kind of, you know, um, competition. But actually, you know, everyone just putting a piece of pasta in the jar as a kind of positive reinforcement for one particular focus was a kind of very physical and very visual way of seeing reward build up and carried much less social involvement than perhaps sticker charts and names and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, in high school, I've done a lot of work with um, schools who are using sort of sanctions. 
And, you know, if we can kind of flip things around and, and talk about earning, you know, the world functions on earning. And, you know, so if we can earn rather than lose, I think it's a much more positive um, adaptation that we can make for um, all of our students, to be honest, but particularly our autistic learners. Yeah. And these two, again, kind of tie in together, but use downtime as a positive reinforcer and to allow an autistic child time and space to self-regulate. I think we I think um, using these things is not always um, ideal. I think knowing that they are available is what is the most important. And I think what we sometimes forget in the busyness of the day and the timetables that we have set out is to put in there a reminder that actually this is where we can go if we need some quiet time. This is where we can go if we need to opt out. And these are, you know, this is available to us. And, you know, I've often worked with um, teachers who said, well, you know, we've got the bean bags in the corner. We've got a pop up tent in the corner and it's fine for our children to go there and use it. But actually, sometimes our autistic children need more direction than that. We need to be thinking, you know, if they are kind of suddenly pulling their hair or that flapping is starting and we know from experience that that's an indication that they're getting agitated or upset. Mm -hmm. But we can then step in and say, oh, I can see perhaps it'd be nice to go to, you know, the pop-up tent or the, or the beanbag corner or, you know, get your fiddle toys out or whatever. But I, I mean, I'd like to see much more adaptations that are very generalised. You know, why can't we have a basket in the um, corner in the classroom where there's lots of headphones for all the kids to get and use if it's getting a bit too noisy or caps with peaks on if it's getting too busy. And I know one classroom that very successfully, they all made their own learning guards and um, put, you know, decorated them and, and they would go and get them and stand them around their own individual place on their table if they didn't want distracting by the other children. So lots of these things can be whole class approaches. It doesn't have to be purely the autistic child. Oh, yeah. This is about language now, but there's a couple of bits here that say about speaking literally. So this is for the teacher to speak literally um, because it takes children on the autism spectrum longer to process things. Uh, so and it's I best for them if the teacher speaks literally and also for the teacher to avoid even the most common idioms uh, like go on a wild goose chase or give someone the cold shoulder. Absolutely. that, And I think, you know, all of those um, things you know, I, I, I've actually witnessed because we're all human and we all trip up. And um, I, I worked with a little boy who um, at the, had a mat at the door at school and it said, wipe your feet. And he sat down and took his shoes and socks off to do just that. And so, you know, that kind of very literal understanding is very common because that social flexibility is what helps us to decode those comments you know, pull your socks up. We, we know because of our social context that that doesn't actually mean bend down and pull your socks up. Mm. Whereas lots of um, autistic children, lots of autistic adults, and yeah. lots of autistic young people, you know, have that very literal understanding. So I think just to take a philosophy of say what you mean, mean what you say, 
can be you know really helpful and um being you know directive and and not um over kind of fluffing up your language really yeah talking of over fluffing up things one of them here says be aware that your classroom decor may be overstimulating to a child with autism um yeah. this is an interesting one um because particularly uh at primary level you would probably see classrooms that are are very visually stimulating so how does that marry together it's really it, it's kind of always a bit controversial and i think sometimes i even stick my neck out a little bit here but i heard a well i had the privilege actually of interviewing a fabulous lady called ros blackburn some years ago and she talks very openly about her autistic experiences and she is what she would describe herself as a person with severe autism because she has um you know she requires sort of 24 hour support but she also says that her autistic skill as it were is her ability to articulate her experiences and she talks about the fact that had her parents not exposed her to the stimulating environments that they did and teach her on a more individual basis to cope rather than expecting you know the train station to be less stimulating the supermarket to be less stimulating and in turn our classroom to be less stimulating yeah. then actually she wouldn't be as able as she is to interact with the world so i think it's all about um balance it's about you know not being over the top if we can and we know that that's going to upset our autistic learner in the classroom but providing the autistic learner with the means to cope with that stimulating environment so for example sunglasses or a peak cap or an area where they don't have to cope with all of that busyness and all of that stimulation at the time because unfortunately and i know you know um i am sticking my neck out here but unfortunately the world is not going to adapt the train station and yes we have some lovely um experiences now where supermarkets turn off their music and cinemas are running um you know more autism friendly showings and things like this and that's fabulous but the reality is everybody's level of tolerance is mm. different so yeah. for what you might find stimulating i might not and yeah. that's the same for that autistic child so i think noticing what they can and can't deal with and helping them adapt and giving them the means to cope on a personal level i feel the same about sensory rooms i think they're great they have their place but we must couple them with coping with our sensory system on an individual yeah. way as well because basically what you're saying is once they're 18 or whatever or when when they leave that environment, environment. They're, they're then open to everything yeah that's out there. absolutely and what we want to do is equip our children uh, with the means to cope ourselves you know we know we know if we are getting distracted in the car because we're trying to concentrate we turn the radio off we know that that helps us and so we want to make sure that our kids have got the same skills and tools in yeah. their set to pull out what they need to do to cope if the classroom's too exciting of course of course Anne marie it's been a pleasure we're gonna we're gonna pause it there um 
absolutely fantastic. Uh, just to emphasize to everyone uh, listening that uh, if you want to get involved and hear more from Anne-Marie, and uh, you can hear how, how much knowledge she has, um, 30th of March, so that's two weeks' time, is the webinar uh, from with the Slack group. Um, and I would highly recommend everybody attend. It's free to attend. It starts at 10 o'clock in the morning on the Wednesday. Autism, Creating Aspirational Futures, a virtual send conference for parents and carers. Now, to be fair, you know, from listening to you, Amory, I think there's going to be a hell of a lot for educators even to to gain from this. Um, I don't necessarily think uh, it, it's it's just going to be applicable. I think I think every teacher who comes into contact with uh, children uh, from lots of different uh, with lots of different, how would we say? Um, not backgrounds that would be the wrong thing to say yeah, but, but I think varying experiences varying I think, experience. you know I've been in this field for a long time and I still don't know everything and I I don't like being um you know flagged up as an expert because I don't feel expert I feel I'm on a learning journey and that continues definitely yeah I won't call you an expert again I promise thank you um, <laughs> um, but um but yeah so thank you very much indeed and um yeah I, I hope you've enjoyed listening. That was Anne-Marie, and thank you so much to her because uh, it was a fantastic interview. It was pre-recorded uh, a few days ago, uh, very much about the upcoming event that with the Slack group have on the 30th. And, and I would really, really, I mean, I'll be going. Um, it's on the 30th of, of March. It's free. Um, and uh, it's all about working with with children with autism. And Anne-Marie is one of the speakers at that event. And I'm sure you can pick up from the interview that you've just heard how knowledgeable uh, she is and the expertise that she will be able to deliver. And the other speakers look absolutely fantastic as well on the day. Um, and as I said, it's free, so uh, you can't really go wrong. Uh, Introducing Autism Aspirational Futures, a virtual SEN conference for parents and carers. Do you work with parents or carers of students with autism? If so, this free virtual conference from Witherslack Group can support them and you. Providing inspiring talks from leading experts, offering practical advice on supporting children and young people with autism and associated needs. This very special event will take place during Autism Acceptance Week and is sure to be an enjoyable occasion for everyone wanting to develop their knowledge, understanding and celebrate their children's amazing superpowers. Don't miss out. Register for free at witherslackgroup.co.uk today. Witherslack Group, the leading provider of schools and children's homes for children with special educational needs.